Amen. Singing the truth this morning. One thing we know as believers, we're going to praise the Lord's name forever, forever and ever. Unending praise. Let's pray together this morning. Father, our hearts are full this morning. We thank you for beautiful music. We thank you, Lord, for speaking to us in music. You inhabit the praises of your people. So, Lord, inhabit us today, inhabit this room, the rooms in our hearts. So, Lord, you, um, you left heaven and you came down and there was no room in the end. But, Lord, let there be room in this end, in this place, in our lives today. And Lord, we pray that you would consecrate our lives today. Lord, take our lives and let them be consecrated, Lord, to Thee always, only, all for Thee. This is our prayer for our lives, that we would be always, only, all for You. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what was the best thing that happened to you this last week? I was thinking back about my week. It's been a full week. Lots of things happened Lots of good things happened. Uh, this morning happened. This music, thank you students for leading us in uh, worship. Grateful for that. And uh, I think the best thing that happened to me last week was actually unexpected. It was at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday. And that's one of my hardest times of the week, actually, because I'm usually just exhausted. And so about 3 o'clock, it doesn't matter whether I'm standing up or I'm sitting down or wherever I am, I mean, I can just fall asleep like, like a horse standing up. I mean, just 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoons. It's a ritual for me, and I don't have to sleep long. But, but I had an assignment, and I was invited to a prayer for peace by our Arabic and Sudanese congregations. And they gathered together, and I saw a video of a young, a young girl named Miriam. It's called A Prayer for Miriam. You can, you can look it up on the Internet this week. But in A Prayer for Miriam, this little girl tells the story of how she's been displaced from her home. She's homeless because ISIS took her home. And there's a reporter who's just trying to hear her story. And it's just kind of amazing because it reminded me that we take a lot of things for granted, but if we were homeless, how would we feel about that? What would that be like to have no place in the world to call home? In fact, there's a new acronym that came out, Harvard Business Review came out, uh, actually it started with the American uh, War College, but it's the little acronym VUCA, do you know it? It's, it's volatility, um, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And it was coined to kind of describe the world that we live in, but the Harvard Business Review said another way of saying VUCA is, hey, it is crazy out there. Well, it is crazy out there, right? So it's been crazy this week in all kinds of ways. And what we think of as craziness, I don't know about you, but for me, it's like when the access road gets backed up because everybody's trying to get into the mall right now. That's kind of, you know, hey, it's crazy out there, I might say. But I think in different parts of the world, there might be different things. For instance, if we were in Cairo, Egypt this morning, where Christians in a Coptic church, where that church was blown up this, this morning, or over in Turkey, in Istanbul, where there have been bombs this week. We're just reminded that craziness in one place is not the same as craziness in other places. But one thing I think I know would be very crazy is if I didn't have a place, if I didn't have a home, if there wasn't somewhere for me 
to go. And the Israelites understood that because there was a period of time in history where they were exiled and they were in a foreign land. And you can even hear it in some of the psalmists saying, so they asked for us for one of the songs from Zion, but we just hung our harps in the willow trees because how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Imagine what it would be like to be little Miriam today in a strange land because somebody took her home away. Perhaps the scriptures will shed light on that for us as we think about the coming of Christ in this Advent season and patiently waiting as our single adults reminded us in the scripture reading from James 5. Would you open your Bibles with me? Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35. Maybe the book of Isaiah says more about the coming of Christ than the other prophets do. Do you think so? Um, Because maybe it's because God actually did come to Isaiah in the temple in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, he says a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he's looking into the future. And in chapter 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But I have never in 35 years as a pastor ever preached Isaiah 35. So today's the day. Let's stand together. And it's his picture of what it will be like when God comes. Hear the word of the Lord. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord. The splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. The the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush Forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Please. You ever feel abandoned? I suppose the people of Israel, when they were in exile, must have felt abandoned by God. We're your people, God, but, but for all the world, nobody can tell right now because we're not in Jerusalem and we can't go to the temple and we can't worship and we're in this strange land and we've been exiled and they must have felt like everything is bad. And there in that desert, it was hard to imagine life ever becoming good 
again. In fact, Isaiah paints two pictures here. I didn't read chapter 34. You might read it for yourself. It's a pretty dark portrait. It's not a portrait of heaven. We might say it's a portrait of the other place. It's a place, he says, where it's just endless desert and everything is sorrow and all is bad and there are hyenas there, jackals, hyenas, there are also owls there. And I don't know if you know this, but in the Old Testament, if they wanted to say a place was totally desolate, then they would say, and there are owls and hyenas there. I don't know what we would think of in that way. I know Melanie and I and, and Paisley and Casey were walking uh, this summer and we passed by a house and there was a steady stream of bats flying out of the siding of the house. And I was thinking, oh, that's not, not good. Not, not bats. We've had bees in our house. We've never had bats in our house. I don't want bats in my house. And this is kind of the portrait that he's painting. Everything is bad. In fact, if I try to picture it, it would be like, remember the movie The Lion King? My kids probably remember the movie The Lion King. And, and when Simba gets lost in the place where the hyenas are, and there are these bones of, of uh, animals there, and everything is dark, and that's chapter 34. But chapter 35 would be like a different Disney movie that I saw when I was a kid that started with a man singing zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. My, oh, my, oh, what a wonderful day. Plenty of sunshine coming my way. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. And this is exactly what he paints in chapter 35 because the desert begins to bloom and things begin to come to life and things start growing again. And in the middle of that, these people in exile, God just builds them a highway of holiness so that they who have been homeless can find their way home. And all of this happens when he says, your God comes to you. What if God came to us? What would that be like? What would the world be like if God came to us? Well, the, the picture is of the desert coming to life. I remember years ago, we took our kids on a mission trip to El Paso for spring break. And I remember driving by and, and people were advertising land and property. And one of the signs that just caught my attention was, desert view property and that was a good thing like they're like you can see the desert from here I don't know if you've been to El Paso but you can see the desert like uh, there are mountains there too I get that but there's a lot of desert there like my dad's backyard in Pueblo West Colorado you always think of mountains and you can see Pike speak in the distance but my dad lives in the desert and you can see the desert all day long all you have to do is just look out his back window in the desert we think of as a place where things don't grow where there's no life and this is the way the Israelites felt when they were homeless when they were separated from God but he has this picture that when God comes things are going to change things are going to get so much better and, and my sense of our world right now is we want the world we know it's a dark place and it's broken, but we want it to get better. We want the world to get better. So when does that happen? When does the world get better? And, and he just paints a picture of the creation being restored. Ever since we left Eden, there have been problems. But what if Eden were restored? And we just get glimpses of the beauty sometimes, don't we? I live for a part of my life up in Montana. And um, people think of Montana as like one of the really beautiful places, but the whole eastern two-thirds of the state, not so. It's like West Texas, but it's really cold. Like a hundred straight days of one foot of snow on the ground. A snowdrift came off the roof of our house and just kept going. 
like 10 feet high in our backyard. And it was just snow and ice all the time. And it was dark and it was gloomy. But just north of there, there's a place called Glacier National Park. Lake Flathead, waterfalls everywhere. Logan's Pass. We took our kids up there when they were little and we just showed them. I kind of did a running commentary. They make fun of it now. But anyway, I was just showing them the beauty of God's earth and this wonderful world. And so the contrast between the broken world and the beautiful world. And I I just read this week in Kathleen Norris's Dakota, um, the words of a little girl who moved from Louisiana to North Dakota. By the way, that would be a cataclysmic move. Louisiana to North Dakota. There are no people in North Dakota, just so you know. And, uh, and this little girl gets there, and this is how she described it. She said, the sky is full of blue and full of the mind of God. Doesn't that sound like Psalm 19:1? The heavens declare, the skies are shouting the glory of God. Kenneth Chafin, a pastor, used to pastor here in town years ago, was driving between Louisville and Lexington in Kentucky, and he saw the sunrise six times. How'd that happen? I'll, I'll, here's the poem. Today, I watched the sun come up six times between Louisville and Lexington. It was a ball of orange hanging in the mist, a picture a child might draw with a crayon. Each time I dipped into a dark canyon, dug by a creek, then topped the hill again, another sunrise. I wish for a camera had just these two eyes. Wish to be a painter, have only my memory. Sometimes we get a glimpse in creation of the grandeur and the splendor of our our God. As Gerard Manley Hopkins says, God will shine forth. He will make His presence known. But there are moments in our lives, like like the Israelites in chapter 34, where this picture of Edom is just of gloom and and doom but but the image is God will come and what happens when God comes well the good news is God calms our fears but before God calms our fears he typically by his presence creates fear how do I know that remember a couple years ago we did fearless Christmas and we just talked about all the passages where the angels show up and announce Christmas and everybody is trembling and shaking and afraid and everybody is so afraid and the first thing the angel has to say is don't be afraid don't be afraid don't be afraid well this is kind of a booster shot for that because the truth is the very presence of God creates fear the scripture talks about the fear of the Lord and the fear of the Lord is just an acknowledgement that God is there so we don't take him lightly we we know God is not to be trifled with and in some ways the presence or coming of God creates fear for people and in some cases it actually should create fear what do I mean by that well For instance, if you don't know God or care about God or love God or follow God or believe in God, then if God just showed up, that probably would not be a good day for you. And that's what chapter 34 is saying is when God shows up, and you hear it in this passage when he's saying, so I will come to you to save you, but I'll come with vindication and with judgment. Isn't that interesting that God will come? Wait a minute. I, I, people say to me sometimes, I like to believe in a God who never gets angry at anything. Miroslav Volf, who's a theologian, he said he used to think that way too until in his native Yugoslavia, a group of people decimated his countrymen. And this was his description. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath or anger was as a casualty of war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come, 200,000 people killed, 3 million people displaced, Villages and cities destroyed. People shelled day in and day out. Sounds like Aleppo in Syria right now, doesn't it? Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. I could not imagine 
God not being angry. Then he goes and talks about Rwanda, and he says 800,000 people were killed there in 100 days. A little over three months, 800,000 people, genocide. And he said, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. So if God comes and you're shaking your fist in His face, yeah, that doesn't go well. Um, I remember a bumper sticker I saw years ago and it said, so if you're living your life like there is no God, yeah, you better be right. And you're not right. Well, what, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is, if God is holy and just and righteous, and we know we are unholy and unrighteous, and we're going to depend on our own ingenuity to figure it out, that's not going to go well for us. In fact, we have this sense that, that in fact, um, God, God is saying, when I come, if you don't care about me and don't love me and don't want to follow me and don't believe me in spite of all that I've done for you, be afraid. Be very afraid. Because that, that, that won't go well. I remember a professor years ago I heard, and he said, yeah, pastors, I never joke about hell because people are going there. So it's not funny. So I, I don't make jokes about that. And you say, well, that, that just doesn't sound like the God I know. Well, Matthew 10, 28, for instance, says, so don't be afraid of the one who can kill your body but not your soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy your soul and your body in hell. And by the way, he's talking about God there. And he's saying you ought to have a healthy, holy fear of God. So the presence of God at some level with vindication, verse 4, with justice, it creates fear. And I just want to say those people who are, who are pillaging and harming and destroying and, and wantonly killing people in the world today, they should be afraid of God because someday they will answer for what they're doing. So what about us? We don't want to answer for what we're doing. Well, here's the good news. He says, you can, your, verse 3, your hands are shaking, your knees are knocking. What, what makes you afraid? He says, your God comes to you to save you. Your God, He's your God. You've trusted in Him. You believe in Him. You're following Him. He's your God. You don't have to be afraid of God. God's not up there like with this stun gun waiting to zap you so that you become twitchy. That's not who God is. Think about the things that make you afraid. I saw a comparison this week of childhood fears versus adult fears. Do you still fear the same things you did when you were a kid? For instance, when we were children, um, we were afraid of doctors, right? Many of us were afraid, but now as adults, we're afraid of doctor bills, right? There's still a connection there, but it's a little bit different. So when you were a child, you were afraid of bad dreams. Ever have a bad dream and you ran to your, my, our kids used to do that, come to our room and just had a bad dream, a bot, they would say a bad dream, a bad dream, um, but now it's unfulfilled dreams. So that's different, right? But it's still dreams, and, and we have a fear there. Um, when we were young, we were afraid of strangers. And now maybe as adults, we have um, crippling social anxiety. When we were kids, anybody else here? When we were kids, we were afraid of clowns, right? Now that we're adults, we're afraid of clowns. <laughs> so that doesn't change, right? I mean, some things are just always there. And, but here's the good news. He says, when your God comes... Your, your hands don't have to shake. Your knees don't have to knock anymore. If your hearts are afraid, they don't have to be afraid because your God is not coming to harm you. You're His follower. He's coming to save you. And what does that look like? Well, it's like blind people getting to see and deaf people getting to hear and lame people getting to walk and mute people getting to speak the glories of God and to praise Him. Can you think of a time in history when something like that happened? 
Like when Jesus came and said, this is my ministry, the blind are going to see, and he touched blind eyes, and they saw, and he touched deaf ears, and they could hear. I read this week about Pierre Paul Thomas, who was born uh, many years ago in Canada, and he had these brothers, but he couldn't play hockey with them because he was born without sight. He couldn't see. And it was his whole life, and he walked with a cane so that he could go where he needed to go. And then when he was about 66 years old, he fell down some stairs. And it crushed the sockets around his eyes, his, the bones in his face, and so he had multiple surgeries. And when he went in for his consultation after it, the doctor said to him, so we got one more surgery we can do. How would you like for us to fix your eyes? He said, what do you mean fix my eyes? No, how would you like to see? We, when we were in there, we figured out what's going on with you, and we can actually restore your sight. And he said, I would like that very much, and they did. And this is what he said, the people who described flowers to me and the beauty of the sky... Yeah, they didn't do it justice because when he could actually see, oh, it was. And Jesus came to people and he said, do you, remember he said to the blind man, do you want to see? What a question. Do you want to see? Yeah, I want to see. Jesus lets him see. The lame man who's tried so many times to get in the water at the pool of Bethesda and Jesus says, you, you, want, you want to walk? Yeah, I want to walk, but I can't get into the pool because I'm too slow. And Jesus says, yeah, so just get up and walk. And Jesus, he went everywhere he went. So the first time God came, he started setting things right. He started making things the way they ought to be. And it was just his presence in the world, Emmanuel, God with us, that we celebrate at Christmas. That's what began the process of making our world right. You say, we look around, it doesn't look like it's right yet, but but it's going to be. So someday the deserts are going to bloom. I read this this morning in the New Yorker magazine. There's a guy who wants to plant oases across the Sahara Desert. It turns out that one-third of the Earth's surface right now is desert. One-third. And it's growing. And there's like 20 million square miles of desert in the world. But the Bible also says that when Jesus comes back finally, when he ultimately comes back, then he's going to come with a new city and the city's going to come down from the heavens to the new earth and the earth is going to be new and God's going to set everything right. And my sense is that he wants us even now to begin to set things right. So if we see somebody and we can help somebody, we ought to do that because that's what God's about and that's what Jesus is going to do ultimately. It would be kind of odd for us not to care about the poor, for instance, when Jesus cared about the poor. It would be odd for us not to seek justice for the oppressed when when Jesus said that's what he's going to do. He's going to make things right. And he's going to do that not by sending a committee of angels. He's going to come. He's going to come. And it's his presence that brings comfort. So I was reminded, I, I taught homiletics. We've almost finished the class. I think they just have their final exam left. But in that class, um, Paul Rivera was in that class. Where's Paul? And Paul preached, did a good job. And he said that he read a book this summer when he was working with me by John Ortberg. And in the book, John Ortberg said, the number one promise in all the Bible, what's the number one promise God makes to people in all the Bible? Here it is. I'll be with you. The promise God makes is the promise of his presence. Then another preacher in that class, Derek Lee, was telling about how he had this uncle. You ever have an uncle like this? Kind of a favorite uncle who said, I want you to call me Uncle Superman. And he said, I'm not calling you Uncle Superman. You're not Superman. I'm not calling you Uncle Superman. But one day he said he saw a pecan tree, and there were some pecans in the tree, and so he climbs up in the tree, and he's going out on this limb because he's going to get some pecans, and he gets out in the middle of the limb, and it starts to crack. It's a dry limb, and it's about to break, and he starts hollering, and he's thinking, I'm going to fall. And he's like 20 feet up in the air, and this is not good. And he hears the voice. He can't look down because he's so afraid, and he can't look down, and he hears this voice, and the voice says, call me Uncle Superman. 
See, I have uncles like that. I don't want to be an uncle like that, but I have uncles like that. He says, I'm not calling you Uncle Superman. Get up here and get me down. He said, I'm not going to get you down, but I tell you what, I'm right beneath you, and you just, you just, you let go, and I'll catch you. I'm not going to let go. You climb up in this tree and come and get me right now. No, no. I'm right here. Okay, I can hear you, but I can't see you. Yeah, you let go, and I'm going to catch you. And I'm going to be there. And, and, the, and, you know, ever after that, when his uncle caught him that day, now he calls him Uncle Superman because he was there for him in that moment. And this is the promise of God. I will be there for you. I will come to you. I will make, I will make the world right again. And what does that look like? It's like God changing everything. And God's coming calms our fears. So what are you afraid of today? So God is here, Emmanuel. No need to fear. God is here. But doesn't it make sense that if God comes to you and saves you, that you would want to be with God? That He wouldn't just be like a hobby, you know, a once a week hobby? Wouldn't He be your king? Wouldn't you want to be with Him? And so the second thing He says is, so I'm going to make this highway and you're going to come home to me. You're going to come home to me. So you've been homeless, you've been in exile, but I'm going to make a highway. It's going to be a super highway. You don't have to worry about lions or jackals on this highway. Nothing's going to harm you, but it's going to be a highway of holiness and it's going to be the way. Isn't that a beautiful word? The way. It's going to be the way home. I remember years ago, Don Moen sang a song, God will make a way when there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see, and he will make a way for me. No, it's better than that. God won't just make a way. God is the way. So Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the highway to holiness. He's the gateway to glory. He's the way for us to come home to God. And he wants us to come home to God. And the amazing news is we can come home to God. And why, and why can we come home to God? Well, here's the, Tim Keller says, here's the thing. We can come home to God because in order to get us home, God himself was willing to become homeless for us. That's Christmas. He left his throne and his kingly crown when he came down to earth for us. And he became homeless. Not just so we could open presents under a tree but so that we would receive the greatest gift of all, the gift of eternal life. So he became homeless so that we could come home to him. Steve DeWitt talks about this and says, everything good that happens here like ice cream or our, our favorite team is winning a game or whatever, and we, we, we say, I hope this will never end, but it always does. But he said, in heaven, think about this. In heaven, J.I. Packer says, people say, I want this to go on forever, and it does. And that's what Isaiah is describing when God comes, He calls us to follow Him, to be with Him, to live life with Him. And that's the only reason God would become homeless, so that you and I would not have to be homeless. The Son of Man had no place to lay His head, but He invites us to find our home in Him. And when we come home to God, what we discover is that since we've been redeemed and ransomed, He says that's who's on the road, the ones who've been redeemed, the ones who've been rescued, the ones who've been ransomed, and when they come home, he says, they come home rejoicing. Like um, Demosi Lafine that Richard Starnes tells about when he went to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, before they had the hurricane, they had an earthquake. And Demosi Lafine was trapped in the rubble of a building for four days. She lost her right arm and her left leg. 
But when Richard Starnes went there, he discovered that there was a worship service, and he went to the worship service, and Demosa Lafine was leading the worship, standing on a prosthetic leg, lifting her one arm upward to God. She sang for all her worth, and when he met with her afterward, he said, tell me your story, and she said, I'm a single mom of two, and God kept me alive so that I could raise my two daughters, and so that I could praise him for the rest of my life, and that's why I sing to him, because I was Lazarus. And he brought me out of the rubble and gave me my life. And so I want to give my whole life back to him. Well, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, if you were Lazarus and Jesus called you forth from the tomb, wouldn't you want to hang out with Jesus? If you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God made you alive in Jesus Christ, wouldn't you want to be with him? Wouldn't you want to spend your whole life with Him? Wouldn't you call Him Savior? Wouldn't you call Him God? If God comes to us, then we sing for all we're worth. And at the end of the interview of this beautiful little girl, Miriam, who's been displaced from her home in Iraq, and now she's living in another place, and they said, are you mad at the people who took away your home? And she said, God doesn't want me to be mad at them. God doesn't want me to hate them. And and they said, do you pray for them? And she said, yes, I pray for the people who took my home. And I wonder, why did you take my home away? And they said, do you remember any of the songs you used to sing when you worshipped, when you lived in your house and you went to school at your school? And she started singing. And I don't speak Arabic. I didn't know the language. But I could see that she sang like one who had been ransomed and redeemed. Out of her schoolmates, she was one who was alive. So she sang praise to the God who became homeless so that even while she has no home here, she's at home in God wherever she lives. Make God your forwarding address. God, you have been our dwelling place through all generations before the mountains were formed. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Find your home in Him. Because as far as I can see, there's no permanent home on this earth until He makes all things new. And our God will come. And when He comes, He calms our fears. And He calls us to follow. Will we go with Him? We will. Let's pray. Father, thank You for, for coming and bringing us life abundant eternal life lord forgive us for the times we live with functional atheism like you're not there when we know you're there so god today i pray that you would call our hearts home to you and that today if we hear your voice we would not harden our hearts but we would come to you in jesus name amen